Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. This is a reading of God's word. And, the, and a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. You know, one of the things that we look at here is uh, Jesus uh, is a master heart surgeon. Uh, he gets into the places uh, where we often can't even see with our own eyes. And not only is he a master heart surgeon, he uh, is a, an incredible teacher. And what we're going to see here is what he's going to do is he's going to expose a, a, a very, very good man. Uh, make no mistake, this rich young ruler is not some Pharisee. He's not some enemy of God. He's not antagonistic. He's not someone who I would say is uh, uh, overtly blaspheming God or the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's just someone that's really good, very educated a very moral person, uh, someone who would have no problem going to church, someone who would have absolutely no problem being in a small group, uh, would not probably, you know, maybe, you know, uh, uh, worship uh, with hands, you know, Presbyterian style, you know, not charismatic, but, you know, maybe right here, you know, like uh, uh, no problem with that. Maybe, you know, if he's really feeling it, uh, uh, go up and, you know, put the palms out. Um, but... So you have this man, but Jesus really confronts his heart, and he does it in a really interesting way. You know, uh, if you guys, if we can put the, the, the little things up. So uh, what I want to do for you is show you what Jesus did. Uh, the Ten Commandments can be broken up into two sections. Uh, commandments 1 through 4 really reveals the commandments to love God. And then on the side over here, the last uh, uh, six are what uh, lo loving others. So when Jesus said, uh, uh, you know, when they said, this is, this is the law, Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. What he was doing was just summarizing the Ten Commandments. That's how it is. And then when the guy says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. If you, you, know, you want to be saved, you need to obey the word of God, uh, which is really interesting. That's not exactly, I mean, Jesus was kind of like doing, not a, not a mistake, but he was really uh, it, kind of partial truth, okay? And so what he's saying is you, you got to do you got to obey the law, which is actually true. But notice what he does is he doesn't list all the Ten Commandments. Uh, if we can go to the next slide, the yellow represents what Jesus omitted. He omitted one from the loving God, uh, others, and then he omits all of the loving God. 
And the reason why he does this is he basically lists all the commandments, these five over here. And the, and the guy was like, oh, man, I don't, I, uh, oh, man, I, 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 I pay my parents' apartment bill. Uh, I, I, I have never killed anyone. Uh, adultery, uh, been faithful to my wife. Uh, I don't know if he was married. Uh, I haven't really stole much since I was like seven. Uh, and, I, and I don't really lie that much. You know, I just, you know. Uh, I, I just, uh, yeah, I don't think what I do qualifies as lying. And so he was like, okay, I'm good. Jesus said, if you do these five things, you'll be saved. But Jesus was like, no, uh, uh, he wants to pay attention. If you really now want to follow God, give up everything, greed, to show that you love me. And what Jesus is doing is he's actually saying, okay, you, you obeyed all these commandments, but now I'm going to lean into the one thing that you can't give up. And he says, sell all that you have. And Jesus goes into real strong hyperbole. Give up everything you have. Sell to the poor. Come follow me and show just how much you love God. And the rich young ruler it walks away uh, sad because he realizes at that point what Jesus did. That because of his greed, he realizes at that moment, I never really loved God. I like God, I want God, but love him with all my heart, with all my might, with all my strength. He couldn't do it. And so what we find out here is that you don't love God because you love money. But you know what's even more strange than this is his reaction. It says that he was sad. This has perplexed me for many years. Why was the rich young ruler sad? Why was he sad? Now, I'll tell you this. If I were a rich man and Jesus said, uh, you want to follow me? Sell everything you have, all your cars, all your homes, and just walk with me in slippers, and we're going to do some ministry uh, all across uh, Jerusalem, I would have said, you're crazy. And I would have walked away. If I was unable to give up my wealth, I would say, you must be crazy. What you talking about, Will? Uh, you're too young for that. Sorry. Uh, um, just YouTube it. It'll be on YouTube. Okay, that's the archive of human history. But uh, I, I, I would, I, I would, you know, I would have just said, what, "What are you talking about? What a crazy guy!" I, I was like, "You're so crazy!" And I, I walk out. But it says he was sad. Why was he sad? I didn't understand his sadness until I saw Friends. Raise your hand if you have not seen Friends. Oh, Lord. Okay. There's so much you're missing out on. Uh, incredible life insight. You guys, uh, there is gonna, your spirituality will be blocked uh, until you realize uh, you can never have genuine community until you watch that show. Any, anyway, anyway. Uh, uh, in Friends, it's a spoiler alert, but you had like 30 years to watch this, so it's your fault. You guys remember uh, Monica had a boyfriend, uh, Tom Selleck, uh, uh, Richard? You guys remember that? Thick mustache, really old. Uh, uh, Monica's dad's really, really weird. Um, I think Corinthians, Paul talks about stuff like that. But, uh, like, don't, don't do that. But, uh, so she's with Richard. And do you remember when they broke up? Do you remember why they broke up? You see, Monica wanted to have kids, and Richard didn't. Richard actually was previously married. He had children. They were actually adult children, and he didn't want to have any more kids. He was comfortable in his life. Monica wanted babies. 
But they clearly loved each other. They loved each other with their hearts. And uh, they finally realized that they can't be together anymore because neither one was willing to give up the, the uh, a child or to not have children. They couldn't give up what they wanted to have another thing that they wanted, which was to be together. And if you watch that episode, Richard and uh, Monica are incredibly sad. Monica goes into deep depression because of the breakup. And you wonder why. Why? Why is it that they were both incredibly sad? You know why? It's because they had a divided heart. They loved each other, but they didn't love each other enough. You see, they loved each other, but Monica said, I want kids. You see, uh, Richard loved Monica, but he said, you know what? I don't want kids. And they couldn't get over that and continue their relationship. And what broke their heart ultimately is something that uh, it, it says that their heart, their heart was divided. Their heart was torn in half. And you see, this is why it's very interesting because the Bible speaks of character, integrity, faithfulness as uh, being one sold. Right? If you guys remember the psalm, it says, give me an undivided heart, right? Give me an undivided heart, a heart that is not torn. Why? Because a heart that is healthy, a heart that is uh, uh, ready to move, is a heart that is undivided. It is singular in its focus, and, and this, is, this is everything in Christianity. This is the whole of Christianity. You know the difference between King Saul and King David was? King David was a man after God's own heart. Even though he slept with Bathsheba, he got Uriah murdered. He did one of the worst things you could ever imagine. I mean, sin after sin after sin after sin, but yet he was a man after God's own heart. Yet Saul, who made a few mistakes that were actually more understandable than King David's mistakes. But why was King Saul seen as so wicked? Well, you got to go back and look at the children of, of Saul to know why he was kind of an enemy of God at the time. And the reason why is because he had, uh, he had many sons, but two in particular are interesting. There is one son that he named Jonathan. My son's name is Jonathan, so I know what that name means. It, uh, Yo is the abbreviation of Yahweh. Nathan is gift. So it is a, a, this son is a gift from Yahweh. Now, beautiful name. But he also had another son uh, uh, called Ish-bosheth. Uh, that's probably not what his real name was. Ish is man, uh, Bosheth is shame, and a lot of scholars believe that that was kind of glossed over, that there was no way the king of Israel actually named him what he really named him. The real name in earlier manuscripts is actually Ishbaal. He had a man, he had a son, it was a gift from Yahweh, and he had a son, a man of Baal. So what King Saul did was he hedged his bets on God's. He says, you know what, Yahweh, I like Yahweh, but you know what, Baal, uh, he seems to be working out with some people, so I'll dedicate one son to Yahweh, one to Baal, that way I'm covered, my, all my losses are covered. Whichever one is the true God, I still stand to be blessed. And so you see over and over again, the Bible talks about the undivided heart, undivided heart versus the divided heart, and the reason why this man was sad was because his heart was torn. He did not hate God. He did not hate church. He did not hate the Bible, but he did not love it enough in order to give up all that he had for the sake of the gospel. So he's sad. You see, for us, we have, many of us have divided hearts over different things. And you know this, right? Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I joke about it a lot, but you know, I, I, I'm overweight, okay? I wish I lived in Texas because there I'm medium, okay? <laughs> 
Uh, when I go to Minnesota to pastors' conferences, I'm like, I'm like slim fit. But I happen to be, by the grace of God, maybe the hand of God against me, I'm an Asian man in Los Angeles, the worst place to be. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, one of the things I can tell you where I'm torn is I want to lose weight, but not really, you know. Uh, yesterday, you know, uh, when I was here, when I was here, every day, every day I ate uh, the vegetarian option. No, oh, I want to lose weight. Uh, but it was rough. So I started picking at the fries of church members here. And then afterwards, me and Mike would go out and eat, like, you know, carne asada. Uh, I had a little gift basket. I ate beef jerky last night, uh, Flamin' Hot Cheetos, uh, uh, Oreos. So I, I want it. I do. I really do. Like, I, I look at my old pictures. I was really, I was amazing. And I want to lose weight, but I really don't. And I'll tell you this. One thing is when you really want both, when you really want both, uh, and, and because of that uh, lack of commitment, uh, it makes you sad. It does. And so uh, I can tell you that. I mean, and, and, you know, and, and what, I, what I do when I'm sad is I eat more. You know? And so uh, over and over again, this is, and, and it, so for me, it may be weight. For you, it may be something else. But regardless is we actually do understand the sadness of the rich young ruler. A divided heart. Very interesting how God created the human soul, that when our hearts are divided, we become sad. And because of this, Jesus goes on to say something, that it is very difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's, in fact, easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And why is it difficult? Well, I have a father who is very wealthy, okay? Uh, I gave up a, a, a lot of money uh, to become a pastor. Okay? I was set to inherit my father's business. I found out how much he was worth, and I was like, oh, man. Should have gone into the business first, then become a pastor, you know, like Creflo Dollar or something like that. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I had a dad who was, uh, my dad had a jet. Like, like it, it was crazy. I, it was like, it was like I, I, but I was like, I, I don't want that. I want to follow Jesus. And then later I had kids. I was like, oh, maybe a little bit of that would be good, you know. <laughs> These freaking kids are so expensive. But uh, you know, I, 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 you know, and I, and I, so I've seen, I've, I've, I've been around a lot of rich people, and it makes a lot of sense why it's hard for them to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because God hates rich people and he's an you know, underdog. He's all about the underdog. But it's simply because when the more money you have, the more, th more money, the more you think you don't need God. And practically speaking, it's very easy to think that, like God didn't. God didn't, you know, God didn't sell the house to start the business. God didn't, you know, uh, uh, fire the right people and hire the right people. I mean, that was me. You know, I did that. And so it's very easy to get into that delusion. And so it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God because of the security, comfort, and uh, respect that comes uh, with having a lot of money. Uh, you know, I've been, uh, ever since I left my dad's house, I've been very poor. And, uh, I, but I remember one time I got this uh, Citibank uh, a diamond Diamond card. It was free. There's no annual fee. But it was black. And so when I went to K-Town and I would buy it, people thought it was the black card. You know, the one where you have to spend a minimum of $500,000 or $250,000 a year? And so I would get treated differently. It was my only time I got a taste of, like, what it's like to be rich. And so I would go to a cafe and the girl would be like, hey, can I get you anything else? And I was like, hey, I like this. I really like it. Hold on to that card. Keep talking to me like that. 
and then, and then, and when I, you know, I had like three credit cards, but I got rid of all of them. I was like, forget that. This is this is the card. And then, and then, and then, Citibank just just got rid of it. They sent me this blue thank you card, and I handed that to the same girl, and they're just like, whatever, fat boy. And I, and I, and I called Citibank. When, why? Why? Give me back that black card. And they're like, no, sir, sorry, you don't call, you know, you, you don't spend enough. And like, it's like, uh, you know, you, we don't, you don't need that card anymore. We're giving you a thank you card. Just be grateful we give you the thankful card. <laughs> and so I used the blue card, no love, no love. Because it, it looks like an ATM card. It's like, you know. But man, when you taste that kind of respect every day because of what you have, it really, it's very easy to believe you don't need the peace, the grace, the wisdom that God offers. It's really easy to think that. But you know, one thing you have to keep in mind is that it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, but it is not impossible. Because in Luke 18, we read of a man, a rich guy who can't give it up, but in chapter 19, you just flip one page and a rich man enters the kingdom of God. His name was Zacchaeus. So what we learn is that it's difficult, but it's not impossible, but it is impossible for one group of people to enter the kingdom of God. And oftentimes, rich people fall into this category, and that is, it is impossible for the religious to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible for those who believe that their expression of, I don't need God, I love God, I want God, but I don't need him to be saved, and so, therefore, I will do my duties, I will execute the law, I will live out of fear and guilt. When you live like that, it is impossible to be saved. Impossible. You know, Jesus says something really interesting after the Lord's Prayer. He says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And that really confused me because I was like, wait a second, I thought it was about grace. I thought we don't believe in works righteousness. Why is Jesus saying, I need to do a work forgiving in order to be forgiven? That seems to contradict the gospel. But the more I studied the forgiveness and what grace really is, I realized Jesus was not contradicting himself. Jesus was doing, was again, a master teacher. He was trying to highlight something. He wanted us to scratch our heads and say, what is he saying this time? And you see, the reason why he says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Why? Because what kind of person doesn't forgive? Only one. One who doesn't think they need forgiveness. And that is a person who does not enter the kingdom of God. If you don't believe you need to be forgiven, you won't be forgiven because you will be the kind of person who won't call out for grace. So Jesus is doing this masterful teaching showing us the heart of how a soul is healed and saved and restored. You see, it's not about rich people per se, but it's about religious who think that they have what it takes to save themselves. You see, what happened for this rich young ruler, and it happens for different people at different times, is that he started going down the slippery slope of carving images. You see, Voltaire once said, he's a French philosopher, he once said that uh, God created man in his, he didn't believe in God, by the way, but he said God created man in his own image and then man returned the favor. When he looked around and he saw all the religious people in his day, he noticed that the God of every person literally just looked like a manifestation of themselves. And so if you believe that your salvation is to work hard, guess what? You will have a very hardworking God who denounces a, a lack of diligence. If you believe that money is your God and if you worship money, guess what? God will look like a God who your riches mean that you're blessed and your poverty means that you're not. 
If you believe in image or possessions or whatever the case may be, whatever your heart desires, then that will become the very image of God that you will carve. And the problem of the rich young ruler was he had fashioned with his hands. He fashioned with his heart. I would say that he fashioned with his desires an image of God that was simply not true. And Jesus confronted that desire. He confronted that idol. He confronted the manifestation of a false God. And this man was unable to give it up in order to follow. And so I want to tell you this. As a church, you and I, we have to be very, very, very careful today with the second commandment. Do not uh, carve for yourself or create an image of God other than the one that is presented in Scripture. Why? Why is it more dangerous for us today than ever before? Because of social media, carving images has become, we have got got that down. Do you realize, we can shave off 20 pounds just by camera angle. Huh? What? what? 250? 200. 250, 200. You guys see that like viral video, that Korean girl that's like, I've done that like 15 times. It's amazing. I went to a restaurant. um, uh, It's called Major Domo. Uh, David Chang's a famous chef. Uh, Some friends took me out. They wanted to treat us out for dinner, and so we went. And uh, there was these two chefs. My friend was a chef, and then we went to go see uh, uh, David Chang's new restaurant. Two uh, big guys, but I'm I'm, I'm really big too, but I didn't want to look big. And so, you know, right before the picture, one, two, three, I take a step back. (laughs) And everyone was like, dude, did you lose weight? Uh, you think about the food that you eat, the, all the vacation photos. Your life looks pretty amazing when we all know it's not. We can carve images like no other generation because we have the tools that are actually a gift. I'm, I'm not anti-social media, but we have technology. We have tools now. We have filters. We have things that make it so easy to kind of gloss over uh, our, our blemishes. And so as such, maybe perhaps you and I, uh, um, even more so than the rich young ruler, we have to be weary of this idea of religion and fashioning God after our own image. Now, why am I talking about this? What does this have to do with wounded healers? The reason why I'm bringing this up is because religion, religion will create the greatest wounds between you and God. If you believe in somehow, when, and I'm not talking about, you know, I know we sing about grace, we talk about grace, but I'm talking about putting a microscope to your heart where do you really believe in grace? You know, I always thought I was a gospel preacher. I thought I was, was going to be an amazing dad. And I, I got to tell you, I, I, my heart was tested with my kids. Man, my, I remember my kid brought home a, their first B and they were like in third grade. I was like, what's wrong with you? Seriously, like, you have an advantage here. My parents didn't even speak English. You know, I got some good vocabulary. Sure, I scored 480 on the verbal SAT, but that's different. I really did, 480. It's like illiterate. You know, sorry, side, side note. Uh, you know, SAT, so back in the day when I took the SAT in the 90s, uh, there was this thing called reading comprehension. You had to read through it and answer a bunch of questions. And I remember I would read the whole thing, and then the question would be, uh, the question would say, what is Jan's relationship to Mary? And I was like, who the hell is Mary? I, I didn't even read Mary. Like, where is Mary? And I would go look for Mary, and then time's up, and I, I kind of answer mom questions. 480 on verbal. 
immigrants score higher than that. But I remember watching my kids, whether it be their behavior, sit up straight, don't, don't, don't talk back, do this. And all of a sudden I realized I'm a, little, I'm a little Pharisee machine, a school of Pharisee. And so all of us, I'm talking about this, like, we, we, seriously, like, we have to, like, put a microscope to the heart and try to discern the ways in which religion has kept in. This idea that grace is not sufficient for everything, that is religion. Religion is not that grace isn't important. There are many religions that teach that grace is important, grace is necessary, but the difference between a cult and Christianity is that grace is sufficient for everything, everything. That's the difference. And because of this, I'm telling you, there is no greater wound that you will inflict or receive from people and from God than if you believe in religion. There is no greater thing that will damage your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with God, than the areas of our life where grace is not sufficient for me. And so you and I, we, the reason why it creates the greatest wounds is because religion creates anxiety, it creates insecurity, and then because of that anxiety and insecurity, we can't handle it, and so then you have to put your foot down and force yourself to believe you're good enough. That's what happens. Because I'm telling you, if you live your life by like your achievements and your stuff is what saves you, and, and, and you know, how much is enough? You see, if you believe that if you're a good person, you go to heaven, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a good theology. Why? Because how much, when do you know when, how good is good enough? Does God grade on a curve? If your generation happened to be wicked and you scored a D, does that become an A because of the bell curve? Or does God go straight up A, B, C, D? Now, or or is, is D minus passing technically? What is it? Or is God like an Asian parent where B plus is a fail? How good is good enough? Or, I don't know, I, I messed that one up. <laughs> and so religion will always create a tremendous amount of anxiety and insecurity. And you will be forced to do one of two things. Let me tell you why it destroys relationships. If you believe in religion, if you believe in religion, you have two destinies. You either force yourself to believe that you are worthy to be glorified, or you will debase yourself because you're not worthy. So you will be either incredibly prideful or incredibly insecure. That is the destiny of a religious person. This is why you have uh, uh, different people uh, like, you know, the rich young ruler who had a tremendous amount of insecurity. Then you have the Pharisees who had a tremendous amount of pride. But that is the destiny of religious people. And you see, there is nothing more self-destructive as well as destructive in other relationships than religion. Than glorifying yourself through works. There is nothing more destructive to your soul and to your relationships. I mean, I'm assuming that you guys have seen this, but I'm going to just refer to it anyways. One of my favorite TED Talks is given by Elizabeth Gilbert. Right? She wrote the book, like, Eat, Pray, Love, Drink, something in India. I don't know. I, I, she wrote something. I forget the name of the book. Uh, but what, does anyone know the name? Eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, love. Okay? And uh, in it, she, uh, in that talk, she said something very, very fascinating. She raised the question, why do our artists commit suicide at such a high rate? Why, why do our artists self-destruct 
more than any other industry in this country. She actually tied it to a theological belief. She said the reason why writers, actors, musicians are uh, heavily uh, self-medicating and often we lose them to suicide is because we're the only culture in America, we're the only culture where we believe genius is something that you are. In every other culture, she said, she said, in fact, the word genius comes from the Greek word Janus, which was the god of genius. In other words, the Greeks believed that genius was not something that you were. It's something that flowed through you whenever the god pleased. And so she said, that, you know, she identified with the struggle of these artists because why? When she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, her first book, it, it, I mean, it went platinum. The next question that everybody had for her and that she had for herself was, what's next? How do you top that? Is your career all down? I mean, how, how are you going to sell another book? And so she was wondering this, and this, she said, this is exactly why uh, people in the uh, arts industry, they, they, they self-destruct. Why? Because they put the pressure on themselves to be a genius. Now, she's not a Christian, but I think there's a lot of overlay here. Religion is self-destructive because we believe you have to be righteous. You have to be perfect. You have to be holy. You have to be smart. You have to be this, that, and the other. But Christianity teaches that genius and righteousness is not something that you can achieve or that you are, but it's something given to you as a gift from the God. And friends, that makes all the difference. So what is a cure for the anxiety and insecurity that produces false gods? What's the cure? I think the best one, there are many cures, but I want to kind of sh share with you the one that I think is the most important. You know why God, why did God say, don't have any other gods before me, don't make graven images, don't carve images out of your heart and with your hands, don't do it. Why did he say that? The answer to that question is also the answer to the anxiety and insecurity that creates those gods. He says, don't do it because I'm jealous. He says, don't do that because I'm a jealous God. Now, when you first listen to that, you're like, okay, uh, so is God insecure? You guys know there's two types of jealousy. There's bad jealousy and there's good jealousy. Okay? Bad jealousy is what I used to have when I was a single man. I was psycho. I was, I was crazy. My girlfriend talks to a guy. I, oh, I would lose. I mean, I can't call it. I, I go crazy. I go rampage. I would lose my mind. And, you know, like, I, I would sit there, and that's bad jealousy. You know why? Bad jealousy comes from insecurity. You like him more than me. You care about your parents more than you care about me. That's insecurity. Good jealousy, the jealousy that God has, actually comes from confidence. You see, the reason why God is jealous is not because he's insecure. God doesn't sit in heaven going, oh, stop it. Why do you love money more? Stop it. Stop it. Look at me. I'm going to set up all these churches so you can look at me. Look at me. Come on. No, God, God, God's very different than that. That's, that's me. Maybe that's you too. Raise your hand if you're psycho. Just, I mean, just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't. My, my, my wife, I, it used to make me really sad that she was never insecure. I go talk to a girl, and she'd be like, hey, let's go. And I'm like, you know. I'm like, oh, why am I so crazy? 
God is not jealous because he's insecure. He's, he is jealous because he is zealous. God is jealous because of his zeal. His zeal is manifest in the one thing that differentiates him from every other God in this universe. He's the only God who, because of his zeal, pursues. Every other God must be pursued. Only the God of Scripture pursues his people. That's the difference. I'm really into this podcast called How I Built This on NPR. And I was listening to the one on uh, edible arrangements. Uh, I, I, I can't stay. If you ever send me edible, I'm, I'm going to be pissed, okay? That stuff looks weird to me, okay? I want my fruit to look like fruit, and I want my flowers to be flowers. I don't need that mix, merge. That's weird. But the owner of Edible Arrangements said one of the greatest advices he received as a businessman was from his mom, who said, never chase money because money runs faster than you. And in that same way, she's not a Christian, by the way. Gosh, why? How come, how come all the like, Christians suck and all the like, like, you know, people who aren't Christian have such great insight? But this woman understood something very fundamental about the human soul. That there is a uniqueness between God because he is jealous because he is zealous. He is zealous because he pursues. And all the other idols are not to be chased because they run faster than us. I mean, you think you can outrun money? There's no way. There's no way. You think you can outrun looks with your image? No way. No way. You think I always look like this? You think you can outrun, like, your emotions? You think you can outrun uh, 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 your loneliness? You think you can outrun these things? You can't outrun these things. And so the cure for the anxiety and insecurity that creates carved images is to step back, stop, and receive the one who's pursuing you. It's the only way. And until you stop chasing after these things and allow God and to acknowledge his pursuit of you in turn and acknowledge that pursuit, we will never, never end the cycle of religion in our life. You see, because the one thing about God, the reason why he's jealous is because God is telling people, ain't no one going to love you like me. Jesus, when he died on the cross, was like, ain't no one going to love you like me. Do you know why I became a Christian? I became a Christian because I studied a lot of world religions. And very quickly, my, uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I do have an aspect of intelligence that God planted. It's a small part of my brain. And the one thing I'm good at is I'm good at reading patterns. It's one of the reasons why I'm able to tell jokes. It's because I see patterns really quickly. And so when I see patterns really quickly, I applied that when I was studying all the world religions. And I noticed something really, really quick is that almost all the world religions were the same. It was... It put the onus of pursuit on the people. But only Jesus says, you know what? Don't pursue me. You don't pursue me. I pursue you. And ain't no one going to love you like me. Ain't no one going to love you when you got nothing. Ain't no one going to love you when you fail. 
There is no religion that will tell you. You know what? Some religions will love you if you're poor. They'll love you if you're this. But they will not love you when your scorecard is zero. The whole point of religion is the scorecard saves you. The scorecard saves you. But this religion is the only religion, it's the only faith that says, you know what? The scorecard doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And until we receive that pursuit, the, the greatest wound in our relationship, in our marriages, in our, in, our, in our churches, until we get over this religion, we will never see the transformative power of being healed inside out completely. Because you see, friends, as much as we believe grace is insufficient, we've all tasted and seen what it's like to be forgiven, what it's like to receive grace, and that is heaven. Let's pray. Father, for, uh, for three days we've been looking at what it means to be a wounded healer, focus, uh, focusing on our, primarily on the wounds that we have in our relationship with you. And Father, I realize that a part of today's message, I was a little, not abstract, but I didn't really lay out practical application for the church. So I pray that as they, as we, not just they, but as we have kind of read and studied the life of this rich young ruler and the implications it has on our relationship with you and other people, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us receive, acknowledge, and embrace the pursuit of you over us. God, we can't do this on our own. I know this church, and I know that for myself, when we walk out these doors, we cannot make ourselves um, acknowledge the pursuit. That as soon as we walk through these doors, we check our emails, we run right back into the rat race of religion. So Holy Spirit, we need your grace. We need your grace from A through Z. We need not only the grace that you provide, but we need, a, we need you to help us uh, uh, cultivate a heart that receives that grace. And not only do we need your help to receive that grace, we need your help to apply that grace to ourselves and to other people. And not only do we need your help into receiving it and to apply it, but we need your help into uh, persisting in it, persevering in that grace. And so, Father, I don't imagine that any of us here is going to magically uh, 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 experience perfection of receiving grace. But may your grace continue in our lives by resetting our hearts back to the faith that pursues us. And I pray that you will heal us of our insecurity, you will heal us of our anxiety that has forced us to either become prideful or to debase ourselves where we have no shred of confidence. And I pray that you would restore the power of our salvation to us again. And in doing so, may you heal us and use us to heal others. In Jesus' name we pray.